The following reading is taken from some collected works of Martin Luther, The Conduct of Cain Upon the Rejection of His Offering, and His Punishment. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. This and a few following clauses will give us a little grammatical trouble, but I hope we shall make our way out of the difficulty successfully. We know that Cain was disappointed in his hope. He had despised his brother in comparison with himself and had judged that on account of the right of his primogenitor, he should hold the first place with God as he had done with his parents. The judgment of God, however, was quite different from that of men. He showed that he had approved Abel, but rejected Cain. The result was, therefore, that Cain was violently enraged against his brother, for he could not endure with any patience that he should be thus rejected and excommunicated, and deprived also at the same time of its rule and priesthood. Just in the same manner also we see kings and princes to be utterly impatient of the judgment of the church. For they are not satisfied with being kings and princes. They want to be accounted also righteous and saints before God. And they will take to themselves the name of the church. Exactly like these, Cain was filled with indignation when he saw the honor of righteousness increase before God was taken from him. For what else was this than being cast out of the church and excommunicated? And his indignation at this dishonor was a greater in proportion to the measure in which he judged himself degraded beneath his brother. For his thoughts were these, My brother will assuredly aspire to the headship and rule. Since he sees me thus despised and disregarded of God, and hence it is that Moses uses an adverb very wroth, by which form of expression he would signify that Cain was vehemently offended because it was thus ignominiously confounded in public before his whole family, whereas he had always wished to appear the first among them. This Cain-like wrath is just that rage which we see also in the Cain-like church of the Pope. For what is there which gives the Pope, the cardinals, the kings, and the princes greater offense than that I? A poor beggar, set the authority of God above the authority of them all, and that I condemn in the name of the Lord all those things which are worthy such condemnation. They themselves also acknowledge that there are many things which need rigid reformation. But that I, a poor, obscure person, coming in a public out of some obscure corner, should presume to do this, is a thing which they consider to be beyond all endurance and therefore they put forth all their authority against me, and by the weight of that authority they attempt to crush us. And most certainly there is not in the whole world a wrath more cruel than that of this church of hypocrisy and blood. For in all political or civil rage there is some degree of humanity still left. No assassin is led to execution. However savage his nature may be, with pity for whom men are not in a some measure touched, but when that false and bloodthirsting church falls upon a poor son of the true church, she is not satisfied with shedding its blood. She loads him also with her curses and execrations and devotes him to every ignominy and insult, and even vents her rage upon his miserable, breathless corpse. Just like the Jews, who were not content with having nailed Christ to the cross with the full purpose of not taking him down till he was dead, 
But even while he was breathing out the last breath of his soul, they gave him in a thirst vinegar to drink. Mingled with gall, such fury as this is never found in political wrath. To wrath, therefore, the Pharisaic fury of the false church is a fury in its very nature, diabolical. This wrath began in Cain, and it continues in all Cainites to this very day. And we can most truly glory that we have also to endure with godly Abel just such wrath as this in our day. For who entertains a doubt? Did a bishops and certain furious princes could do it? They would slaughter us all in one moment. Who doubts that if according to the prayers of the notorious Roman emperor, we altogether had but one neck? They would with the greatest delight rush upon us sword in hand and cut off our head. Only look at the counsels of these later years and their designs, and you will say that my testimony is true. That which Moses adds, and his countenance, or his appearances, his looks, his whole aspect fell. It is a Hebrew expression, an expression which not only represents the deed done, or the fact, but also implies that the mind also was in such a state of commotion that it could not rest and that although Cain could do no further harm, yet his wrathful will to do so was manifested by his countenance. He did not lift up his fallen brow, nor speak in a friendly voice to his parents as before, and every answer he made them was rather a sullen murmur than a natural utterance. He was struck pale at the first sight of his brother after his offering, which God had accepted and he showed by the threatening looks of his eyes that his mind was burning with a desire of revenge. Moses expresses all this when he says, And his countenance fell. For he does not mean his countenance or visage only, nor merely one part of his countenance, but he intends all his appearance, his whole appearance, his every look, gesture and motion, in the same manner as the apostle uses a Hebrew expression when he says concerning charity that it does not behave itself unseemly, that is, does not carry an unseemly countenance, does not contract its brow, does not look with anger or disdain, does not wear a threatening aspect, but is of a free and open visage, expressing with its eyes kindness and affection, for the latter are becoming but the former are unbecoming and indicative of a vice within. This clause, therefore, and its countenance fail, contains a particular description of the anger and hypocrisy of Cain. He could neither look at his brother Abel, nor hear his voice, nor speak to him, nor eat, nor drink with him in rest or quietude of mind. If anyone desires to witness an example of this Cain-like wrath, let him put himself in the presence of some papist who is seeking distinguished praise for doctrine or piety in his day and generation, and he will find that such an one is the subject of a rage against the truth, perfectly diabolical, to which fury if you compare the anger of a judge, the latter will appear in comparison to be the greatest kindness, mercy, and open candor. For in the judge, anger is merely a duty, he is not angry with the person of the prisoner, but with his crime. But the canine wrath fires and distorts the eyes, scowls the brow, swells the cheeks with rage, and arms the hands, 
In a word, it is evident in every part of the body, and in its every gesture, and that unceasingly, for it does not die away by time as political or domestic wrath does. Next follows a fatherly and most grave admonition of Adam who would willingly have healed and saved his son, if he could have done so. But this wrath knows no medicine or cure, neither Cain, nor any Cainite will hear either father or mother, or God himself. And Jehovah said unto Cain, Why are you wroth? And why is your countenance fallen? Circumstances plainly proved that this present time was not the first time that Cain had been confounded in this offering of his sacrifice, but that from the hour of this sacrifice he had gone in perturbation of mind, filled with sadness and gnashing his teeth, and looking neither upon his father nor upon his mother without an evil eye, affected just as we have already said that Pharisaic rage affects the whole man and changes the whole visage and gesture. For Cain considered it to be a great indignity that at a public sacrifice, and in the midst of divine worship, and before the eyes of his father and his mother, Abel, whom he had always despised, and whom even his parents themselves had accounted a child of naught, should be preferred of God to himself and thus pronounced of God worthy the glory of the kingship and the priesthood. As soon, therefore, as he had fully shown that he was of a hostile mind towards his brother, he received from his father Adam the admonition in our text. For my belief is that these words are spoken by Adam himself, and that Moses says they were spoken by the Lord, because Adam had now been justified and been gifted with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, though things which he now spoke, by the Holy Spirit, according to the word of God, are rightly said by Moses to have been spoken by God himself. Just as at the present day, those who preach the gospel are not in reality themselves the preachers and teachers, but Christ, who speaks and teaches in them and by them. And most certainly these words are spoken by Adam with peculiar gravity and intent. For he saw that his son could not patiently endure the indignity put upon him. He saw him grieve over his loss of superiority, and he felt what havoc the tempter might make in the corrupt nature of his son, who had done such evil to himself and Eve, when in a state of innocency and perfection. Adam, therefore, was filled with deep anxiety and addressed his son with that solemn gravity of language which Moses records in the text. And although no one of the fathers has explained that speech of Adam to his son Cain in a matter worthy of gravity and importance, because perhaps none of them had sufficient leisure from their ecclesiastical engagements, yet I will attempt to move this stone of difficulty out of the way, and as I hope and think not without some advantage to the truth. Verse 7. If you do well, shall it not be lifted up? Shall there not be a remission? And if he do not well, sin lies at the door. I cannot sufficiently wonder how Moses was able to condense so mighty a subject in so few words. Our translation does not properly express a sense of this, and although Augustine was not altogether unacquainted with the Hebrew language, yet his knowledge of it was not thorough. 
for he renders this important text thus, If you offer a right, and yet do not rightly divide the offering you have sinned, rest, and be quiet. What sins are those well acquainted with the Hebrew know? Though the doctrine which Augustine deduces from his rendering of the passage is theologically correct and good, the Septuagint translators of the Hebrew seem also not to have been duly qualified for the magnitude of the work they undertook. Therefore, leaving for the present both the translations and the opinions of all other commentators, we will now strictly follow the proper sense of the Hebrew in the text before us. That sense is the following. If you do well, there shall be remission or alleviation. If you do not well, sin lies at the door, and so on. Moreover, it is ordained by nature, as even the philosopher testifies that words should be made to serve things, and not things made subservient to words. The sentiment of Hilary is well known, which a certain master of sound opinions also thus cites. Words ought to ever be understood according to the manner contained in them, and intended to be expressed by them. In every exposition or explanation of the scriptures, therefore, the subject matter is first to be considered. That is, we are first clearly to see the thing spoken of in each case. When this is strictly done, then the words are to be brought to a due application to the thing. If the grammatical laws of the language will permit, but the things are never to be made to bend to the words, and it is because the rabbins and those who follow them do not this, for they have lost the things, and so cleave hard to the words only, that they often fall into the most absurd sentiments and opinions. For as they possess not thoughts worthy of those spiritual things of which the sacred scriptures speak, they err from the subject matter treated in each case by the word and draw the words after them in the vain and carnal cogitations. But it is certain that the Jews have lost Christ. How then can they possibly understand aright either the things of the gospel or the things of the law? They know not what sin is, nor what grace is, nor what righteousness is, how then should they be able to explain successfully such passages of the scriptures? Just so, the Jews are in general the wiser sophists of our day. For what sound knowledge have they of such divine and mighty things as these? Being ignorant, therefore, the thing itself, how is it possible that they should rightly understand the words of the scriptures in which it is expressed? And although a knowledge of the words is prior in order, yet the knowledge of the things is better and more important. For if you alter the things, the words also will be changed into another sense to correspond with the altered things, and a new grammatical construction altogether is a sure result. First of all, then, it is necessary, as I have said, that we hold fast the divine manner in question. The divine manner then involved is that which cannot deceive as being the foundation of the whole divine cause, that nothing pleases God unless it be done in faith. According to that universally applicable and well-known sentence of the Apostle Paul, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Romans 14, verse 23. And Solomon also says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 15, verse 8. 
The other great foundation of the cause of God is that sin is so mighty that it can be put away by no sacrifices, nor by any works whatever, but by the mercy of God alone, which mercy must be apprehended and received by faith. And all this is manifested and shown to have been the good pleasure of God by the first promise concerning the seed of the woman, without which seed there is no redemption. Now these foundations the rabbins do not possess. For this knowledge comes by the Spirit of Christ alone, who like the mid-sun illumines all the darkness of nature and sin. Whatsoever therefore militates against or is contrary to these foundations we at once reject is false and impious. Therefore the meaning is, if you had done well, or if you had been good, that is, if you had believed, you would have had God favorable and merciful towards you, and there would have been a true alleviation to you, that is, a remission of sin. But since I see that God is not respect to you, it evidently follows that you were not good in his sight, and that therefore you were not relieved from your sin, therefore your sin remains. However, it is a most beautiful and striking similitude to make use of the verb, to lift up, or to lift off, in order to compare sin to a heavy burden under which Cain was so oppressed and prostrated, so that unless it were taken off he could not draw his breath. And the epistle to the Hebrews shows the manner in which we are released from this burden when it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Hebrews 11 verse 4 by this mode of interpreting this important passage, the words or the grammatical construction perfectly agree with the manner contained in them, which is, that God has respect to faith only, and judges those alone to be good who believe. And these words of Adam contain also a most severe rebuke. Their meaning is, as if Adam had said to Cain, Your pride has destroyed you. You came before God inflated with the glory of your primogenitor, and you thought that God would accept you on that account. But I clearly perceive by this judgment and reprobation of God that you are destitute of faith, for God rejects none but the unbelieving. Not one of the rabbins explains the passage before us in this manner, for they don't see that Adam is here inculcating in his son, after the manner of the Apostle Paul, that word of Christ and the gospel, he that believes shall be saved, Mark 16, verse 16, and also that word of the Apostle himself. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, Roman 3:28. For what else does Adam here say to Cain? Then that God is merciful to those who believe in the blessed seed, and it cast away all trust in their own works, and all ideas of their own merit. For his meaning is, if you shall do this, your sin shall not lie thus as a heavy burden upon you. You shall be relieved of that load, nor shall you thus roar with rage. For God has promised that he will not impute sin to anyone that believes. If therefore you refer these words to the passing of Cain, they contain also a most grave fatherly admonition. Their import is, as if Adam had said, Before this you have not believed, and therefore you are thus rejected. And if you shall still go on this way, 
you shall be utterly cast off. But if you shall do well, or become good, that is, if you shall believe in the promise seed, I take upon myself to assure you that the result will be that you shall be relieved of the burden of sin. That is, as the psalm interprets this expression of Adam, sin shall not be imputed to you, Psalm 32, 2. The clause which follows sin lies at the door is a figurative description of sin, which for my part I should prefer understanding as being used as a proverb. For this figure exactly describes the real nature of sin, showing that while in the act it lies like a beast, dead asleep, it doesn't bite, nor terrify, nor torment, but rather fawns and pleases. Thus, when he first and afterwards Adam ate the forbidden apple in paradise, they did not think that God had seen it, much less did they think that both should be so bitterly punished for what they had done. So also ferocious beasts, when they are just satisfied with food, are more tractable and more inclined to sleep than to harm. In the same manner also sin, while it is in the act, it is delightful, nor is this poison or pain felt. It rather lies down and goes to sleep. For whoever saw a miser to be racked with pain, while an opportunity of great gain stood before him, Whoever knew an adulterer to grieve at the opportunity given him of gratifying his wishes, if he had at that moment torn his skin with a scourge, or beaten his head with a mallet, the temptation would have vanished. But while sin is asleep and its punishment unfelt and unseen, it is a height of pleasure to the miser to rush upon his gain, and to the adulterer to possess the object of his sinful desire. Nor does there seem to be, nor does he wish for, any end, or any bound to his pleasure. Adam is speaking, therefore, in this passage, not only of the sin of Cain, but of sin in general, showing what the real nature of sin is. For that which was the state of Cain is the state of all men. Before he offered his sacrifice, Cain proudly boasted of the privileges of his primogenitor. He despised his brother and assumed to himself the first place in all things. Sin was then lying still and asleep, but it was lying at the door, that is, in a place or state in which it was likely to be disturbed. For it is by the door that we go in and out, and therefore a place by no means adapted for a long sleep. And this also is the very nature of sin. Although it does lie asleep, yet it lies in a place where it is not likely to sleep long. For Christ says, There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. Matthew 10, verse 26. The wicked man thinks, indeed, that his sin is asleep and hidden. But it lies asleep at the door, and at length it is awakened by conviction, brought to light, and made known. For at the door and rest and sleep are things directly opposed to each other. For as darkness is opposite to light, so asleep, to an unquiet place, they are things contradictory to each other in their very nature. In this manner, therefore, may the present passage be interpreted in its reference to Cain's past sin.